I want to talk today um, about the gospel of compassion. And uh, I first want to uh, tell you that uh, um, we're not talking about the uh, social gospel that a decade ago became very prominent um, and uh, where people believed that uh, that the human race is re was really good and that we just had to keep working together and we would bring um, the kingdom of heaven to earth. Um, that is not the gospel I'm talking about today, uh, but the compassion-driven gospel of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Um, <clears throat> and this week, Dr. Steve Doan and I have talked quite a bit about missions, which I would define as taking the gospel message to people who have not heard it or taking it to people who have heard the gospel but still need convincing. Just as the very heart of God is compassionate, the very heart of missions is the compassion of God for last lost people. He had compassion first. It's not something that certainly the church invented. The proof of that was the willing sacrifice of God the Son on the cross in Jerusalem to pay for our sins, the sins of the world. And if that isn't the ultimate act of compassion in the history of our universe, I don't know what is. Years ago when uh, Bangalore Hospital was still a bit primitive um, <clears throat> and we were only about 10 years out from starting, a 40-year-old woman was diagnosed with tuberculosis. I admitted her to an old uh, brick house that uh, the early missionaries had built and we had converted into our TB ward. Um, and I started her on anti-tuberculosis medicines, which fortunately we had. We shared the gospel with her and uh, invited her to put her faith and trust in Jesus, but she was a spirit worshiper and she was afraid to, to, to offend the spirits, especially now that she was uh, sick and having trouble, and uh, so she declined. But after two weeks of uh, tuberculosis medicines, uh, she was no better, actually she was worse. She had suddenly developed shortness of breath, and uh, I listened to her lungs with my uh, stethoscope. We didn't have uh, x-ray at that time. We didn't have any pulse oximeters or anything like that. <clears throat> I did, though, have a stethoscope, and um, I listened to her lungs and I was puzzled that her lungs sound pretty, sounded pretty clear. Um, we didn't have any oxygen, so what else could I do except pray and ask God to heal her? So I laid a hand on her shoulder and prayed for God's healing. And, um, but later that afternoon, the Lord prompted me to check on her with uh, one of our African uh, nurses. And so uh, I went back to see her and now she was breathing very fast and she was quite frightened. Um, now let me stop here and explain uh, that for this story to make any sense to you, I'll have to teach you some human anatomy uh, and medical terms, if that's all right. Uh, you're, I figure that you guys are pretty bright and you can handle this. Um, when I had her sit up again to listen to her lungs, I suddenly noticed that her jugular veins were distended. Now, when you're laying down your jugular veins, if you have a skinny neck, they might be distended. But when you're sitting up, they're not supposed to be distended. And um, in a flash, I remembered that tuberculosis can sometimes spread to the space around the heart and produce fluid. Now, there's a little sac around the heart that's called the pericardium. And uh, it has, a, you know, just a little bit of uh, body grease in there to help the heart to work, you know, but it's not supposed to have any fluid in there. Um, but because the lungs are right next to the heart, um, <clears throat> tuberculosis will sometimes spread to the pericardium. 
And if that happens, then the pericardium will fill up with fluid. And if it fills up with fluid, the heart can't expand to receive blood that comes into it. And if it can't receive blood, it can't pump it to the lungs and the rest of the body. And that's what was happening with her. And uh, it, it can be lethal. It, it can, she was very close. So um, <clears throat> the, uh, I didn't have any ultrasound to prove that. All, all it was was, you know, my training and and uh, memory, and I, I actually had never diagnosed a case like this before, but you know, when the Lord is there, you can do all kinds of things. And so um, we laid her down there, and uh, I explained to her that she had fluid around her heart, and that we had to get that off, and um, she was having such a hard time breathing. I mean, what else was she going to do, but trust me. And so I, I brought this large needle and came up, and uh, then I had her lay down, and with a little local anesthesia, I started advancing this needle right under her xiphoid here. I don't know how you would feel if you know, I did that to you and said, it's going to be okay, and I'm advancing it towards your heart. Um, if you go too far, you actually get into heart, and that's bad. Um, <clears throat> but uh, usually when there's that much fluid around the heart, you, you have a pretty good space. And so I advanced that in there, and fluid started to drain out. And as that drained out, uh, by the time I pulled out a cup and a half of fluid, she was breathing normally, and she was praising God. Uh, that same day, she invited Jesus to be her Lord and Savior. When simply speaking the gospel and explaining the gospel to her to win a soul to faith um, fails, adding love and the compassion of God very often succeeds. And, um, you know, we see that in the ministry of Jesus. How many people did he heal? I mean, it didn't lead, obviously, more than 10% of them to follow him, but he healed tens of thousands of people out of compassion. Everybody knew that Jesus loved them and cared about them. The Oxford Dictionary describes compassion as sympathetic pity and concern for suffering or the misfortunes of others. In other words, it's a feeling. Uh, that's not a biblical definition because God does not work that way. A biblical de definition of compassion would be that God empathizes with someone who is suffering and he feels compelled to reduce the suffering. Our God loves us and he wants to reduce our suffering. But as we know, not all, practice, not all of us practice compassion in the same way. And so we can kind of grade compassion. There's what I call do-nothing compassion. That's where we have sympathy. We see a picture up there and we hear a story and it's like, oh, that is so terrible. I just feel for that person. But then, you know, the football game is on and we get on with it, um, <clears throat> especially if our team is winning. But uh, um, that's do-nothing compassion. And um, it actually is the secular Oxford Dictionary definition. It's a feeling. Feel better compassion, I have experienced myself where I have sympathy um, and I give a random handout. I feel much better. doesn't change anything, though. You know, you have the guy in this standing on the corner with a sign, hungry, want to eat, um, please help. And so as you go by, you slow down and hand him a $10 bill. And we feel much better, and he's very happy because most of the time, probably 9 out of 10 times or 90 out of 100, uh, he'll go and buy drugs. But um, <clears throat> that's... that's uh, action that makes us feel better, but doesn't change the situation at all. Um, it's not, uh, and, and of course, we don't pray for that. I, I didn't pray for that individual after I gave him $10. 
I just went on feeling wonderful and so glad that I was uh, serving God. But um, that, that's really feel better compassion. It's not the kind of compassion that Jesus explains or demonstrated to us. And then there's half-hearted compassion, which is where we sympathize, where we encourage, where we even might empower a little bit. Um, but it comes short of love. We, we will be nice to a person and, and we will help them in a certain way. But if they're not grateful, well, they can just go jump in the lake. And uh, you know that you've experienced that as I have. Um, so, and there might be occasional prayer, but I, I would call that half-hearted compassion. In contrast, godly compassion is sympathizing, comforting, befriending, loving, respecting, encouraging, praying, and effectively empowering people who are suffering so that they overcome their suffering. The best example I know of that is the prodigal son, the way the father received him. Look at all that he did for his son, uh, and he forgave him on top of that. So it's not an easy thing to do. Um, Back in uh, 2004, uh, a political party in our town of Gabon, Africa, decided to embarrass the president of the country for ignoring um, the need for a bridge across our river. We had to cross on a hand-pulled ferry that missionaries had built some 20 years before, and when it sank, then, you know, we built another one. Um, and that was the only way to get a car across uh, this river, 75 feet wide. Um, and the thousands of patients that came to our hospital um, had to cross on the, that ferry. At night, there wasn't somebody to pull the ferry across, but there was a large canoe that was chained uh, to the cable, and you could sort of pull yourself across, um, but not always. Um, but it, it was a hard thing for patients to get to the hospital. And we kept praying for a bridge, but, you know, we're talking millions of dollars. And um, so... Uh, a political party decided to embarrass the government by uh, cutting the cables one night to our ferry and letting it float down the river. And uh, so patients couldn't get to our hospital unless they got in little dugout canoes, you know, that uh, the water was an inch from the top after you got in and you had to be real still there. Um, thousands of patients came to our hospital that way. Uh, meanwhile, the, uh, there was a group of Canadians who were building a dam uh, close by, and so we, I went to them and I said, they, they had heavy equipment, I told them the story, I said, we really need that ferry to be pulled by, out of the river, go down river and get it, could you guys do that? And they said, yeah, we'll do that. So they went down with their heavy equipment and they pulled this five-ton thing out of the river, it was about five miles down the river, and they put it on a truck and brought it up and put it back in our river. And uh, the, the next day they were going to hook it all up again to the cables, and um, a group of thugs uh, this political party hired a group of thugs who came and beat these guys up and almost killed them. And they left a sign on the, on the ferry, anybody who touches this ferry will die. So people still had to cross the river on canoes, and uh, we looked at that situation, and, you know, you don't want to be foolish and rush in, um, but uh, I, I didn't volunteer to go and fix it. And neither did anybody else on our team. 
Um, and so it stayed like that for about six weeks to two months. I don't remember how long. The canoes would take people across for a dollar a person, and uh, that added to the hospital, people's bill at the hospital. I mean, at that time, uh, it was $5 to be seen and seen by a doctor and be diagnosed and have tests and then get your medications, all, all for $5. But now you had to add a dollar each way, going, and for each person if you had a helper or husband or wife. And so it was really penalizing the poor, but we hesitated to get involved in this fight. Um, but one night, a woman arrived on the other side of the river from the hospital. Uh, she was in labor, and she was obstructed. She'd been in labor for about 30 hours, and um, the people screamed for help until they were hoarse, and nobody heard them. Um, the people who operated the ferry uh, weren't, weren't there anyway, but usually the people who took the canoes back and forth didn't come out at night. And in the morning, both the mother and the child died. Well, um, at that point, the Lord really began speaking to me that we could not let this situation go forward. I shared that with my wife, Becky, and she was not interested uh, that I go and do this. Wives are like that. Um, there was only one other man on the station. He was a young uh, missionary in charge of the um, MK school, uh, the dormitory for the missionary kids. His name was Jim Timberlake. He, he had just uh, had come off from language study, French language study, and his French wasn't real good. So I said to Jim, um, Jim, would, I think I know how to put this thing back together and the cables across the river. Would you come and help us? Would you come and help me? And he said, well, uh, are we going to get beat up? And I said, I don't know. So we went down to the river, and there were, they had, there had been, uh, after this, uh, they put, these guys put the sign up. They, they had um, two thugs that were there with clubs guarding uh, the ferry, so nobody touched it. So uh, that morning, we got all of the equipment we thought we needed, and cables and cable locks and stuff that I had seen up there before, and we took it down to the river, and as we got out and started dragging this stuff down to our canoe, uh, we had a dugout canoe too, um, these guys uh, said, what are, you, what are you doing? And I said, well, um, <clears throat> we're going to put this ferry back in operation so that no more people die on the other side. And, uh, and they could come to the hospital. And uh, these guys said, well, if you do that, we're going to beat you to a pulp. We're going to do to you what we did to the Canadians. And um, <clears throat> Jim said to me, what did he say? <clears throat> and I said, well, we're, we're just kind of argue, arguing about what we're about to do. <laughs> but I said to him, um, look, and, and I think this was the Lord's idea. I said, I'll tell you what. Why don't you let us go ahead and try and put it together? We might not succeed, you know, but um, I'm just a doctor. And so we'll try and put this back together. And when we're all done, you can beat us up, and then you can undo it. Oh, well. All right, go to it if you want to do that stupid thing. So we started, uh, uh, we started uh, putting up the cables on each side and tying them up and going back and forth, and, and we worked all day. We worked all day. And as we worked, these guys, you know, they would, they would uh, bang, on the, bang on the steel cable there, and they'd say, we're going to beat you guys up. Boy, you're going to be so sorry you touched that, you know. And we'd say, okay, okay, we'll be, so we'll be over soon. And, if we were on the other side. Anyway, we worked on this ferry all day and around 4 o'clock. We finally got it all rigged up so that we, you could get, go across on it. 
So we put all of our tools on it. We were on the other side. At that point, it was on the other side, and we brought it across the river to the side where the thugs were on. And we came across and took all our tools off, and Jim and I went up to this guy, and I said, okay, you can beat us up now. And the Lord had just taken away our fear. And these guys sat there, and they looked at us, and they said, Doctor, if we so much as touch you, everybody in this town is going to kill us. You know, it wasn't our bravado that made that possible. It was the Lord. It was the Lord. The compassionate Lord who gave us compassion, enough compassion that we were willing to risk our lives. You know, if we're not really willing to pay the price for compassion, we won't do it. We won't be a part of it. There is a price for compassion. The Apostle John wrote in 1 John 3.17, If someone has enough money to live well and sees a brother or sister in need but shows no compassion, how can God's love be in that person? W.L. Walker writes in the Blue Letter Bible, Compassion is a fundamental and distinctive quality of the biblical conception of God. It lays at the foundation of Israel's faith in Yahweh, for it was out of his compassion that he, by a marvelous act of power, delivered the Israelites from Egyptian bondage and called them to be his own people. Nothing, therefore, is more prominent in the Old Testament than the ascribing of God's compassion, pity, and mercy. Lamentations 3.32, though he brings grief, he also shows compassion because of the greatness of his unfailing love and compassion. Because compassion is at the heart of the character of Yahweh, the prophets declared that it was essential an essential requirement for all members of the community, and it should be extended even to the whole human race. Jesus also included our enemies. Therefore, all who call themselves God's children must necessarily cultivate compassion in their hearts and show mercy to everyone. Now, I, I don't know if you've ever had been involved with homeless people. That's one of the things I do in my spare time um, in our community of Reading, where we have a 1,000 homeless people. Um, they are the hardest people to help in the world. No question. But God calls us to love them. And they're also almost the whole hardest people to love. Um, out of all of the religions in the world, however, Christianity may be said to be distinctively the religion of compassion. And I have seen that again and again. Islam is not a religion of compassion. That's why Christians invented the first hospitals and why medical missionaries have been for centuries an integral part of reaching the world with the gospel. But are we replacing God's way of healing through faith and prayer with human effort? Now, that's a question that a number of people have asked me. They say, you're a doctor, and you're out there, and you're a surgeon. Um, you know, what happens in putting your hand on somebody and praying for healing? Well, it doesn't matter how far you go into the science of wound healing. God has made the human body so that um, you and I don't have to instruct a muscle or a joint capsule to do what it was made to do. It already knows. If you put it in the right environment, if you help it in the right way, it already knows, and that's God. That's God's part in healing. We don't heal 
All we do is prolong life using the wisdom God gives us. There are times when injuries or infections or cancers can be so great that they overwhelm our intrinsic capacities to heal without outside help. It is then that God invites us to partner with him by using both the knowledge he has given us and the skills. In addition, the power of prayer. To physicians who acknowledge God's lordship, believe in his limitless power, and are humble enough to ask for his help, God can be an especially attentive and powerful partner in compassionate medical care. That's what I did for um, decades and decades in Africa and the last five years in Egypt. Why does God's compassion often succeed where the message has failed? In Luke 8, 43 to 48, we have a, a good uh, understanding about this, a good answer to this. Then a man named Jairus, a leader of the local synagogue, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come home with him. His only daughter, who was about 12 years old, was dying. As Jesus went with him, he was surrounded by the crowds. A woman in the crowd had suffered for 12 years with constant bleeding, and she could find no cure. Coming up behind Jesus, she touched the fringe of his robe. Immediately, the bleeding stopped. Who touched me? Jesus asked. Everyone denied it, and Peter said, Master, this whole crowd is pressing against you. But Jesus said, Someone deliberately touched me, for I felt healing power go out from me. When the woman realized she could not stay hidden, she began to tremble and fell to her knees in front of him. The whole crowd heard her explain why she had touched him and that she had been immediately healed. And Jesus said, Daughter, your faith has made you whole. Go in peace. It was the compassion of God that led the woman with 12 years of constant bleeding to her Messiah. But where does the gospel come in? Is it compassion to be merciful and kind to someone who is suffering but leave out the gospel? Even when there are multiple opportunities to share it? Is it kind and thoughtful and compassionate to sit next to somebody in an airplane, my hardest thing to do, and uh, share the gospel? You know, uh, every time I get on an airplane, I pray, okay, Lord, you need to have, give me courage and help me to not offend this person, and we're so afraid of offending people. But what was really funny on this airplane flight to camp come here, when I flew from Chicago down to Fort Myers, I was sitting next to this very sweet couple that were coming to Fort Myers. They'd left their kids behind. They were just going to have uh, a, um, a second honeymoon, and uh, they'd been married about uh, six or seven years. And we, we talked a bit, and I tried to, you know, figure out how I could start talking about the things of the Lord. I mentioned, you know, what is your spiritual life? And they kind of bumped it off. And, and so, you know, you don't want to press too hard. But I did give opportunity and nothing came out of it. But as we got to the end of the flight and we were saying goodbye to each other, she handed me this little card that says, God loves you. <laughs> I said, well, I love him too. <laughs> Why didn't you tell me? <laughs> so... Um, there are those people out there, and we, but you know, we, we need to not be so fri- afraid. Where does the gospel come in? In Mark, uh, Mark chapter 2, Jesus was in the house, a house in Capernaum that was packed with rapt listeners. You know this story. Four men carrying a paralyzed man uh, came, um, and they couldn't get, bring him to Jesus because of the crowd. So they went up on the roof, and they dug a hole in the roof above his head. They lowered the man uh, on his mat down in front of Jesus. And seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralyzed man, Be healed. 
No. No, he didn't. He said, my child, your sins are forgiven. The gospel was first. Jesus was not content to simply enable a paralyzed man to jump to his feet and walk. Leaving out the gospel would have been the cruelest thing he could have done. But sure enough, some of the teachers of the religious law who were sitting there thought to themselves, what is he saying? This is blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. So Jesus asked them, he knew immediately what they were thinking, why do you question this in your hearts? Is it easier to say to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or stand up, pick up your mat, and walk? So I will prove to you that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. Then Jesus turned to the man and said, stand up, pick up your mat, and go home. And the man jumped up, grabbed his mat, and walked out through the stunned onlookers. They were all amazed and praised God, exclaiming, we've never seen anything like this before. And every one of them had heard what Jesus said, that he was the Son of God. In the short run, the most important words to that young man were Jesus' command for him to take up his mat and walk. But for the rest of his life and into the next life, the good news that Jesus was God and able to forgive his sins was the greatest gift he could ever give him. So in response to the question, is it compassion to leave out the gospel, I'll let you decide. But what if it's inconvenient? Oh, there are times when it is really inconvenient. Um, very inconvenient to, sh to, to be compassionate. Um, <clears throat> you know, uh, in Matthew 4, 13 to 14, Jesus heard that his cousin John the Baptist had been beheaded by Herod. And, and Matthew's account says that as soon as Jesus heard the news, he left in a boat to a remote place to be alone. I mean, John was his cousin. He grew up with him. They were, they were best buddies. And now John has been beheaded and Jesus heard this and he just needs to get away to mourn and process this. And um, it says, but uh, the crowds heard where he was headed and followed him on foot for many towns. I mean, couldn't they give him a break? Couldn't his father give him a break? Uh, but the crowds heard and they came. They only saw their needs. Matthew says Jesus saw the huge crowd as he stepped from the boat and he told them to all go home so he could go up in the mountains and mourn. Nope, he didn't. Jesus had compassion on them and healed their sick. Compassion can be very inconvenient. It can be very costly. Later that day, he fed 5,000 men, not counting women and children, so it could have been 15,000 people. I mean, I don't know how he did it. Did he break it for 15,000 people, or did he, like the Chosen says, did he do a few and put them in a basket, and they multiplied, and the, I don't know how he did it, but he did it. Then while the disciples rode across the Sea of Galilee in the dark, Jesus walked to them across the water, once again revealing to them his divinity. His compassion was never convenient. If compassion was that important to Jesus, the driving force of God's mission to save the world, it should be equally important to us, not just because we, when we feel like being compassionate to our neighbors or strangers or people on the other side of the world, but whenever we encounter or hear about suffering people, that we have the power to help. We have the power to help the people of Israel right now. We have the power to help the people in Palestine right now if we get on our knees. 
Of course, we must be discerning and wise about those we choose to help. There are plenty of scams coming to our computers and TV screens every day. Before jumping, we need to seek God's advice and the advice of our spiritual leaders or family members. We know that nothing in life happens apart from the will of God. But some of us are already giving to support various ministries so generously that we have little to give to new projects, even projects God puts on our hearts. How can we respond with compassion? I mean, I'm in that fix too. I'm on three boards. Which one do I give my money to? I'm a retired missionary. It's very simple. Get on your knees. Get on your knees and pray. Why is compassion so important to God? And I'm going to come back to this um, the compassion that drives us to pray? The short answer is because compassion is an expression of his heart. It's at the heart of God. It's the way he feels about the human race. Over the past few years, a uh, few days, um, Dr. Steve Doan and I have shared the story of PAX, a ministry which God called me to start at Bangalore back in 1996 on a wing and a prayer. The joy that I experienced over the next two and a half decades of training and discipling African and Egyptian surgeons was something I would not trade for all the money in the world. Now my former students are serving the sick in some of the neediest places in the world. One of them died of Ebola, caring for people. Another one survived Ebola, saved the lives of 280 people in uh, the country of Liberia and was on the cover of Time magazine for his compassion. Now my former students are serving the sick everywhere, motivated by the compassion of Christ. They are healing people through surgery and prayer and are living out the gospel as they serve thousands of patients in Africa, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of patients, because there are now 147 of them out there and another 150 in training. In January, we'll have 170 uh, residents in training and who are being both discipled with a curriculum, a Bible school curriculum, if you will, and trained to be very competent surgeons. A number of my surgeons, and I'm going to share this tonight, a number of the surgeons that I, um, that I trained are, have gone long beyond farther than my skills and are wonderful, godly men and women. Psalms 86.15 says, But you, O Lord, are a God of compassion and mercy, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. Colossians 3.12 says, Since God chose you to be the holy people he loves, you must clothe yourselves with tenderhearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. 1 John 3.17, If someone has enough money to live well and sees a brother or sister in need, and we read this one already, but shows no compassion, How can God's love be in that person? So how can we who are retired continue serving our king? In Luke, some of us can go overseas short term. I I made what I hope will be my last trip Uh, (laughs) last June. I got back, my whole body ached, oh, for the whole whole trip. Um, They make those airplane seats for midgets, I think. And, um, and there's just no way to get comfortable in them. But we live in the richest nation in the world. In California, where I live, a wage of $15 an hour is considered poverty pay. In half of the cities, towns, and villages of Africa, people are living on 2 to $5 a day. That means every dollar that we give to bless them and help them goes further than we can imagine. 
we, uh, we shared this week that the average number of surgeons per population in Africa is between one for every 100,000 people to one to every 2.5 million. Other studies have shown that 10% of all adults' deaths in Africa and 20% of all pediatric deaths can be prevented by timely, skillful surgery. And what's lacking? The surgeons. The surgeons who are compassionate, the surgeons who will serve among the poor. It costs PACS $125,000 to train and disciple one surgeon. That's a tenth of what it costs in the United States. During their careers, each surgeon we are training will share Christ's message and compassion to hundreds of thousands of people. A retired, as a retired missionary, I know my limits in giving. There are always more worthy projects than we can give to. But as I mentioned before, Jesus said to his disciples in John 14, 13, you can ask for anything in my name and I will do it. Do we believe that? There are probably more prayer warriors in this room than in all of California. <laughs> um, with enough power to move heaven and earth. Like me, you cannot save in person, you cannot turn, serve in person, you cannot turn the world upside down in person, but you can do it on your knees. On this issue, I know I'm preaching to the choir. Uh, I talked to the CEO of, of PAX, a wonderful godly woman um, uh, from Indian, uh, uh, Indian ancestry who is a lawyer, and she's uh, been uh, of the PAX um, uh, CEO now for about uh, six or seven years and uh, just has tremendous faith. Um, and I said to her, so what is it going to cost now to train surgeons um, up through June for the, for the budget year? She says it's going to take another $4 million. Where are we going to get $4 million? I, she didn't have a clue and neither did I. But you know what? Our God knows. And so if we get on our knees and we pray and ask God for $4 million for PACs, God will give it. And so I, that's my biggest ask for you today. You are the people who know how to pray. You are the people who have seen God answer prayer again and again. And God is blessing you with this time where you have time to pray. So I would encourage you to do that. Pax has obeyed Jesus' call to compassion to reach out to the most medically needed continent in the world. God has given us the privilege of training and discipling some of Africa's most gifted and faithful men and women to become fully trained surgeons and powerful Christian witnesses. We have trained, now we have specialty programs and we're training heart surgeons in Kenya. We're training neurosurgeons. We're training some of Africa's uh, only plastic surgeons, some of their only pediatric orthopedic surgeons, pediatric surgeons. God is just blessing as um, medical missionaries come from the United States with all of these gifts and training to train and disciple Africans to do these things for Christ. May Jesus Christ be praised. <laughs>